Survivor fans, we are not just surviving, we are thriving with the power of nutrition. Let's talk about wonderful pistachios, a snack that's not only delicious, but also a protein powerhouse. When I was on that island, I would give anything for a snack to keep my energy levels up. Well, did you know wonderful pistachios are one of the highest protein nuts out there? Each one ounce serving gives you six grams of protein, delivering over 10% of your daily value. Whether you're a hardcore survivor or just need a boost during your day, wonderful pistachios are the perfect personal protein stash ready to go whenever hunger strikes. So whether you're cracking open each nut one by one or enjoying the convenience of no shells, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Outwit, outplay, outsnack with Wonderful Pistachios. Visit wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. MTV's official challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to On Fire with Jeff Probst. That's me. This is the only podcast that takes you inside the making of Survivor from the producers who make the show. I'm the host and showrunner of Survivor. I'm joined this week, as I am every week, by two other television producers, Brittany Crapper, a supervising producer on Survivor. Hello again. And Jay Wolf, who doesn't work on Survivor, but is a TV producer and the producer of this podcast. Hey there. All right. For today's featured topic, we're going to go back 23 years to season one. We shot that in Borneo in the South China Sea. We thought it was worthy of a deep dive because during those first 39 days, we didn't necessarily know it at the time, but we were laying the foundation for a lot of the how and why that still guides the show today. And yes, we've added advantages and twists, but essentially the show really hasn't changed that much. That's what we're going to explore. Plus your questions and one lucky fan gets to tell me why I suck. Yeah, they do. (laughs) But first (laughs) let's get inside this episode, episode five of survivor 44, which Brittany Crapper produced. She produced the premiere and now she has episode five. So congratulations. Thank you. It was so good. So the big story Matthew left the game, and I know, Jay, that you have something to say about this. I do have something to say, and it might not be what you expect. Mm. Kane said it in the episode, and, and I found myself completely in agreement with him, that Matthew is an absolute gladiator. Having sustained that same injury myself, and mm. certainly not being out on Survivor, having to live and do everything that Survivor entails, it is super difficult. And so getting to watch Matthew go through this process and play as hard as he did, as long as he did, was truly amazing. And I just want to say, Matthew, I think you're incredible. Yeah. And I completely respect you and every decision you made. Yeah, he didn't want to leave. And even though medical didn't pull him, you know, he left on his own. It's not a quit. I mean, the guy was in intense pain. And even our Dr. Will said, I don't blame him. I mean, I'm not going to pull you because it's not life or death, but... I get why you're doing that. And I'm with you. I like Matthew. He came, he played hard, and he made the right choice. He has a family and a career that he needs to look after. Yeah, right. Well, I also want to talk about my two favorite people in the world, Matt and Franny, (laughs) because I'm very into this romantic situation. Mm. I also noticed, Brittany, that you made a choice to include the producer again, Ah. saying that they (laughs) see her blushing a little bit. I did. I did. You could maybe even say it's this podcast that's inspiring me, this (laughs) whole behind the scenes. Um, No, I don't know. I just, when I watched that for the first time, I saw that moment play out and that's when it clicked in my head that I was like, oh my gosh, she is so smitten with this guy. And so that raw moment felt like it could really let the audience in. What I liked about it was 
It was an honest moment. It wasn't a leading question. It was merely an observation, but it showed the relationship between the producer and the player is steeped in trust. Mm-hmm. To Brittany's point, they see you falling for this person. That's an intimate thing to share. And so it was a, I thought it was a very cool way to let the audience in on that relationship. Totally. Well, just so you know, Matt and Franny, I'm keeping a list. And at this point, we're going on a road trip and we're going to get Ethiopian food. So I'll continue to keep this list. And at the end of the season, the three of us will get together and figure out when and where we're going to do it. I'm curious what you thought about Jam Jam and Josh, another pair that came together. Yeah, I didn't see it coming. And it feels like an unlikely friendship. I thought it was a really beautiful moment that they shared. Well, it's a very powerful scene, and uh, and I was struck by it too, Brittany, when I first saw it. You have Jam Jam, who shares something really intimate about feeling unattractive, and then Josh, feeling that vulnerability, shares something also intimate about being gay and how it impacted his life. What is it you're trying to illustrate there? Uh, you know, that vulnerability leads to bonding. You know, they both shared something intimate and now they have a potential alliance. So it's the game change that can happen oh, yeah. when it, you're willing to share. Right. And it happens so fast on Survivor. And that's what I'm looking for when I'm, you know, trying to put this episode together. I'm tracking these relationships. And that was a big moment. They hit a turning point and they went from adversaries to potential allies. Which then has the impact that Carolyn may now be on the outs. And it kind of takes you back to the first season, that first unlikely partnership that ever happened on Survivor, which was Richard and Rudy, two people from very different walks of life who in their normal lives would never meet. But what Survivor offers is the question, what if they did? What would happen? Would they align? Would they become adversaries? And I think that relationship was important because in the early season of Survivor, it showed us that the different walks of life approach to casting is essential. You don't want the same types of people on the show. You need differences. And then those differences are what lead to these surprising partnerships like Jam Jam and Carolyn. Jam Jam and Josh. (laughs) Franny and Matt. (laughs) Exactly. All right, well, good. Well, that actually leads us right into our featured topic, season one. We're going back in time to the summer of 2000. That's next. It's On Fire with Jeff Probst. Be right back. Listen, wearing the same clothes for 26 days straight on Survivor really made me realize the importance of buying high-quality, long-lasting clothes. That's why I love Quince. They have timeless, well-made pieces that last for years and don't go out of style. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. Buying pieces from Quince means that I don't have to keep buying new clothes every year, which is better for my wallet and the environment. I recently got a super chic Italian leather tote from Quince, and I'm loving how it looks. The best part about Quince is that by partnering directly with top factories, they're able to keep prices super affordable. I'm talking 50 to 80% cheaper than similar brands. And the other best part is that Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I love that. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com Survivor for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot Survivor to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com Survivor. 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Fire with Jeff Probst. All right, let's get into our featured topic, season one. Let me set a stage for you. Imagine I'm Mark Burnett. I'm a television producer and I'm pitching a show idea. So uh, imagine (laughs) the audience is at home. It's eight o'clock on a a Wednesday because you have nothing on at eight o'clock right now. (laughs) And here's what they see. 16 people. We're going to abandon them in the middle of the South China Sea and leave them to fend for themselves. They're living in a jungle. They've got to find fish or or, or eat a rat or something like that. But they're going to compete in these giant epic challenges where they get food rewards or they get immunity. But the losers have to go to tribal council where there's fire and torches. And vote someone out, like Lord of, Lord of the Flies, that, that book. And so in the end, here's the twist. A jury of the people they voted out decides who played the best game, and they get a million dollars. That sounds like the show I work on today. Exactly. <laughs> because in prepping this, it's really clear that 23 years later, it hasn't changed that much. Of course, we have advantages and twists and all that stuff, but 44 is essentially the same game. Yeah. And I don't know if the folks at home know this, but I watched all of Survivor in a row over the pandemic. And so you were really able to watch the show evolve, though the format stayed the same. That's the key. The format. The format is king. And as long as you play within the box of the format, you're fine. And what I think is interesting about going back to season one is you can see the foundation, the fundamental building blocks, the lessons that we learned that still guide the game today. Well, take us back there. Take us back to the summer of the year 2000. (laughs) Okay. I'm the last person hired. I was the last person to arrive in Borneo. I knew very little about the show. So I land in Borneo and immediately they put me on a boat and I'm driven out to this sand spit. And if you've never seen a sand spit, I find it mesmerizing because you're in the middle of an ocean and there's, it looks like this just a pile of sand (laughs) there that you're walking on. And so Mark and I, who I barely know, we're walking back and forth and he's telling me what the show is. And he's saying, you know, it's, it's about heroes and villains. It's about, a, it, it's a new society. It's a, it's a tribe. They must work together and all these things are really cool, really invigorating. And then after an hour, I don't say a word. After an hour, he stops talking. He says, okay, now we have to shoot something for the upfronts. I had no idea what an upfront was. <laughs> I've since learned it's where you go sell your shows to the advertisers. So it's your pitch. And, and he says, so you're going to have to describe what I've just told you, but it has to be dramatic, Jeff. They, they have to love it. So they'll spend money and advertise on it because that's how we pay for the show. 
So a helicopter lands, <laughs> Mark walks away, gets on the helicopter and says, just talk to the camera in the helicopter. <laughs> and he takes off. And I'm standing alone on this sand spit. And then the helicopter <laughs> flies and it circles back. And I see a hand waving out the window. And I see a camera. So I start talking. And I try to regurgitate everything he said, everything I can remember. I try to make it dramatic. And then the helicopter circles back. And I think, okay, that was a good kind of rehearsal. So I'll do another take and I'm sure it'll be better. There was no other take. That was it. Wow. Mark it. landed the helicopter, told me to get on. And what we talked about is that Mark said, this is not that kind of show where we're going to do 15 takes of something. I've hired you because I trust you. I told you what I wanted. You gave it to me. Let's move on. And that is the same philosophy that guides us today. We figure out what we're going to do. We commit to it. We shoot it and we move on. Another thing that hasn't really ever changed is your wardrobe, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the safari shirt, the shorts, the choker. What, how did that come to be? <laughs> okay. Well, starting with the shirts, I do remember buying those shirts in Kuala Lumpur. There was an adventure shop. There was no wardrobe person on our show. It was me and Kelly Van Patter, who was the production designer. In other words, somebody from the art department. And we just bought what they had. And it's weird. I can vaguely still kind of remember the shop and the clothes were huge. And if you watch in those early seasons, you can see they're at least two sizes too big <laughs> and they were really thick, heavy cotton. They were not breathable fabric. And the choker actually came from this guy, Adam, in the art department. I didn't ask for anything. He just, he had a little tiny shell. I still have it. He drilled a hole in it. How he drilled a hole and not broke the shell, I don't know. And he put a piece of leather around it and he gave it to me and said, you want to wear this? Oh, I was wow. like, that's kind of cool. Sure. I didn't know that was becoming my wardrobe. It seems like fortunately they did figure out how to make them in your size. Yeah. Well, that's because we tailor them now. The, the truth is we got a wardrobe person and check this out. Maria Sundin is our wardrobe person. She is the woman who designs the spacesuits for SpaceX that go up into outer space. She is a, and then she comes over to our show and says, let me help you with your survivor shirts. <laughs> but what we do is we buy the shirts just online and then she tailors them to fit my body and then we dye them specific colors. So if you wanted to get a shirt like that, call Maria Sundin and I will say it'd probably be easier to get a SpaceX <laughs> spacesuit than it is to get a survivor shirt. Well, let's talk about tribal council for a second. You tried a few things. A conch shell that lets you talk. Right. A gong when you walk in, a chest full of money. And those money. are gone, but almost everything else is the same. Hmm. You know, they walk in, there's a big fire in the middle, they've got their torches, they get snuffed when they get voted out. Right. Was that all there, a part of day one? Well, funny thing about the first time I saw a tribal council, Mark brought me there and we're walking through the jungle and it's dark, but I can see fires in the distance. Those are the fires that were lighting up tribal council. And he said, hey... I'm going to have you watch somebody else do a run through of tribal so that I would understand how it was going to flow. Granted, I'm still finding my place on the show. I've been there like 12 hours, but I did know one thing. I didn't, I didn't want to watch someone else do tribal council only for the fear that, that I would be forever mimicking them. And I was, you know, I was excited to be a, a part of something that I was in on the ground floor and I wanted to have some authenticity and some ownership and, and how I experienced it and what I brought to it. And so what I'd learned from our one take approach on the sand spit 
was that what mattered to Mark as much as anything is that he always wants to be moving forward. Let's go, let's go, let's go. So there was a lot to get done and time was precious. So I said, hey, instead of watching a run through, why don't we just get me out there like we did on the sand spit? I'm ready to go, man. Let's just start. And so Mark said, okay, that sounds great. What that allowed me to do was navigate around watching someone else do it first. And it let me show Mark that I'm learning. I know what you want. You want people who are ready to take the ball and shoot at people who had a point of view. And that's really the type of leader Mark is. He wants to work in the most productive way. That's actually interesting for me to hear because from the outside, it seems like he was also just showing you that he trusted you mm. to take risks and do what you want. It was huge for me. And I don't know if that was his intention, but that is exactly how it made me feel. It was so powerful that I, obviously I still remember it. I still remember that story because it made me feel that he had faith in me to help him tell his story. So, you know, Mark knew what he wanted but he knew he had to have co-conspirators. I was a co-conspirator, his production designer, his director, his DP, Kerhoffer leading the challenge team. What Mark did that was really smart is he laid a foundation, even in the early days, that he would let you run your department. I remember him talking to Kelly Van Patter, who ran the art department, and telling her it was her department, and it blew my mind. We're still forming the show. But looking back on it, I think... That is a big part of why that show felt so expansive, even in season one, is because he gave permission to everybody to trust their instincts. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's still to this day how you run the show. In what way? I mean, I feel like you give me that same freedom to try things and explore, and I feel that trust in you, and it allows me to go my own way as well. Well, that's that's great to hear, and that really that goes back to my <laughs> my first day with Mark and the way he treated me, and it's interesting trust because it does two things. It, it makes the trusted person feel empowered and encouraged to do what they think is best, but it also puts a burden on the trusted person to deliver because now you want to prove to the person who trusts you that their decision to trust you was a good one. So trust is not just about, it's your call, do whatever you want. Trust is about, I trust your instincts to tell your part of the story in a way that serves the greater story, our story. And you can see this on our crew today with people who start in, in the show in a certain level and because the trust is there, they grow and their instincts come out and they're great and then they get promoted and they become a bigger part of the show. It all still stems from the same belief in each other. Riley Ranthful, who is this woman who is our first AD. And Jay, you know, that is a gigantic job. Yeah, it's the biggest on the set in some ways. Riley started at 18 years old. Now you have to be 21 to be a dream teamer. She was 18 <laughs> when she was a dream teamer. And she slowly worked. She was a Monday before she got married. She also married somebody on our show. <laughs> but she worked her way up and she got into the art department. And when we needed a new first AD, we went to Riley before Riley believed she was ready. I remember her saying, I don't know. And we all said, we do. And then we threw her into the fire. And I will say, with respect to every first AD we've ever had, our show has never run as good as it does with Riley. N not close. And I'm friends with some of our former first ADs. Riley is a special, special human and a tremendous leader. And she never even raises her voice. But that started with trust. I mean, I can speak to that personally, too. I feel like every step along the way, you did that for me as well. Well, I remember every step of our journey. 
I mean, Jay, we did the same thing with Brittany, started as a dream team or worked her way up. And then we threw her into doing one of the reunion shows, which is a lot of responsibility. And it was kind of like when I met you, it took about three minutes of talking and I said, oh, Brittany's got it. Okay, great. Can't <laughs> wait to see how this comes out. And it's been that way ever since. So we've talked about this one take idea that essentially says prepare well because you only got one chance to do it and you <laughs> right. still do that today. Then we talked about the wardrobe that you wear, which you also still wear today. Uh, and the trust that Mark gave to you that you've given to crew members, and that's still a part of the show today. Another thing about that first episode that I think still continues to today that I'd love to learn about is the vernacular. You're absolutely right. And that was something we were really clear about. We wanted it to feel like this society, this survivor society, has been here for a thousand years. You're the one that's just discovering it. So we chose words specifically like castaways and tribes instead of teams or idols and immunity and tree mail because we wanted it to feel unique and tone was also important. In those early seasons, I was embarrassingly serious. Those early tribal councils, it was like somebody was literally going to be sacrificed. <laughs> this is the ritual at tribal council. Once the votes are cast, the decision is final. The person <laughs> voted out. I mean, I was ultra serious and I knew it was corny. I 100% knew it was laughable. And the early reviews all said the same thing. The show's interesting, but who is the goofy host saying all these corny things? And I did fret over it a little bit that I was going to be the joke. And my only hope was that if we lasted long enough, people would start to see that I'm in on the joke. I know I am the joke, but I'm okay with it because it's in service of the story that we want to tell. I feel like the most iconic piece of vernacular is the tribe has spoken. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Where did that come from? Well, Regis Philbin was on the air at the time with Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And he had that famous line, is that your final answer? So I felt like we needed a final line at tribal council because that's what was happening in the culture. Mark didn't feel that way. And he kept kind of ignoring me. I'd bring it up, but I was undeterred. So I had a big whiteboard and there was like me and Kuroffer and a couple other people. And I had like 75 versions of terrible lines. They just, there was nothing unique about them. It was just variations of, you know, it's over. And I kept pestering Mark. And one day I hit him when he was annoyed and he said, okay, fine. You, 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 all, right, all right, Jeff, and here's what you say. You say, um, you say, well, obviously your tribe don't want you around no more. <laughs> and that's exactly what he said. And I go, Mark, it just, it doesn't roll off the tongue. And he was so exasperated. He goes, I don't know what to tell you, Jeff. The tribe has spoken. It's the way it goes. And there it was. Boom. And the funny thing was, Years later, we were being interviewed with the Museum of Television and Radio and some important interview about the origins of Survivor. And the, the interviewer asked us, where did the tribe of Spoken come from? And Mark goes, I don't remember, Jeff. Where did that come from? And for a moment, I thought, oh, my God, I could take credit for one of the greatest lines ever. I didn't. I gave credit to Mark where it belongs, but I had the thought. What about the iconic hand in the air, Survivor's ready, go? Did you rehearse that? No, that came like so many of these things just in the moment because what had happened was that that was the first immunity challenge and it was happening at sunset and there was a storm coming and we had these lanterns and they were the fires were going out and it was kind of chaotic and the survivors were starting in the water quite a ways away from me and they couldn't really know when to start the challenge. So I said, here's what I'll do. I'll raise my hand. And when I drop it, you all go. Sound good? And they're like, okay. And I raised the hand and then I dropped it and they, they went. 
And then the next challenge, I thought, well, that worked. Let me just do that again. Now I do it when they're four feet away. You know, it's, it's just because it became one of those pieces of the tapestry. And you could obviously make the case, you don't need to do that every challenge. No, you don't. You also don't have to wear a buff, you know, or have an immunity necklace. But these are some of the things that we think that were founded in those early days that became part of the format that you need in order for the show to maintain its integrity in terms of a show and a format. I have a question about crew size, actually. I, I started in 2011 and we had the same, I mean, similar to today, right. massive crew. Was it like that in season one too? No, no. season one was very small. It was 85 total people. Today we have 300 plus 400 local labor. So a 10% right. of the crew. And every department was grinding, and we only had five boats. Today, we own 30 boats, and we hire another 10. We had to walk everywhere. We walked through muddy jungles every day, and everybody carried gear. I carried tripods. Everybody did. And I'm not kidding. It was muddy and hot and sweaty, and I'm in those shirts that are thick cotton, <laughs> and then you'd shoot the challenge, and then you'd walk back. We had one phone line, one phone line for the entire crew and Craig Pelagian, Craig Pelagian was an EP that season with Mark. He carried the key to the phone line around his neck <laughs> because everybody wanted to get access. Right. And if you got on it, what you got was either you tried to get online because online was brand new and it was AOL and you'd hear that. <laughs> or you'd try to call home because mm. we were so isolated from everybody. But the interesting thing was we didn't think the crew was small. The crew was just what it was. Right. We didn't think it was hard work. We just thought it was work. And it wasn't until a few years later that we would look back and say, man, that first season, do you realize we only had eight camera operators and they shot everything? So, you know, it's all about perspective. But the foundation of working hard is still there today. Survivors, no picnic. If you work on our show, you are going to work very hard every day. Speaking of picnics, what was the catering situation like? The catering was non-existent, you know, as a contrast today, we have Marianne who does our catering and she'll make a hundred thousand meals per season for our crew. Wow. What we had in Borneo was a family, a local family, and they cooked for us. And what they cooked was fish heads in ah. broth every day, every day. The fish head with the eyeball still there in the broth. I lost 20 pounds that I never put back on that season. Wow. I know. So I'm grateful for the fish heads in that sense. Okay. As we head into the home stretch here of this season one review, I have three final examples, and these speak to the philosophical approach that we were really forming in season one and how that approach still relates to the show today. Number one. Never stop shooting. This is a thing that Burnett drilled into our head. And here's the situation. We're at Tribal Council one night, season one, we're shooting. It's a massive storm. And the few lights that we have are going out. Bulbs are busting. Lighting grids are falling down. The few cameras that we have are starting to break down. This storm was so bad that that night we lost three of our five boats. In fact, the ship's wheel of one of the boats crashed into the shore and Kerhoffer kept it as a souvenir for years. <laughs> so you're out there and you're kind of waiting for somebody to, to come and say, run for cover. <laughs> but instead, Craig Pelagian, who had the key around his neck, he comes onto tribal like a general in a military operation and says, keep shooting. 
He literally did as if we didn't know what to do, which we didn't. He said, I'm telling you what to do. Keep doing it. So that was the first big lesson is that we shoot no matter what. The second philosophical approach that we learned in season one was that rewards must escalate. Meaning if in episode six, you get a steak dinner, episode seven can't be one potato chip. It just doesn't, it's Pavlovian. You know, you start to expect these things. So here's the situation. We have a reward and the reward was going to be one cold beer. And we had a sponsor, Budweiser. So we send out tree mail and we get word back that the players are disappointed. They don't just want the one cold beer. The reason they're disappointed is because the previous reward was bigger than a beer. So we're realizing in this moment, oh man, they, we want them salivating when they're seeing a reward. And as great as a cold beer is, they've already had something better. So that was our mistake. Now we know rewards need to escalate. But meanwhile, we still have a situation. The sponsor, Budweiser, their people are there on location. Oh, wow. they're, they're coming to see their investment being integrated into the show. We're going we're to see Budweiser on this new show, Survivor. It has to be great. It can't be a so-so reaction to Budweiser. So we adapt. And what we did is Mark gathered a small group of us around in a circle, and he said, we need ideas. And it was Kerhoffer who said, what about that show, Dinner in a Movie? Could we do anything with that? Mark instantly goes, I got it. Here it is. You tell them it's Budweiser plus spaghetti, and they get to see the first five minutes of episode one of the show they're starring in, Survivor. Because, Jay, we had editors on location. Oh, wow. So they were cutting. So we actually had the first five minutes pretty much put together. So the only big question we had to answer is, where are we going to do this dinner and a movie? Because we only had these few remote islands and our base camp. So the big decision was, we'll transform our base camp where we all live into what looks like a local Malaysian bar. And Kelly Van Patter was our production designer. So she starts the transformation. First, you got to get rid of all evidence that that there's a production crew there. I don't care how small the crew is. That's a massive undertaking. It was. It was an enormous task. And Brittany, it had a ticking clock. So we hire some local people. We bring them in. We get some foosball tables. We have some beers. Now we're finding places that we can hide our cameras so we can shoot it. And so while they're doing that, we're going out to run the challenge. With the Budweiser clients there on Exactly. Hand. So we're feeling the pressure of, oh my God, I hope this works. So we announced the reward and because it had spaghetti and the survivor tees, the players are very surprised and very happy. So that all goes great. We run the challenge and Kelly Wigglesworth is the winner. Base camp is not ready. They say, we need another hour. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God, exactly. Okay, more adapting. So John Kerhoffer takes Kelly Wigglesworth, who won the challenge, in a boat and blindfolds her and says, we're taking you to an island far away. <laughs> it's a local Malaysian bar, but we can't let you see everything because there's some challenges that are out there that are being built, so we have to blindfold you. <laughs> Meanwhile, he just drives her around in circles <laughs> for an hour. So Kelly Van Patter, who's our production designer, she's done it. She has transformed our base camp into what looks and feels like a local bar. It really was amazing. So we do the whole thing and Kelly comes and we sit down, we have spaghetti. We watch the first five minutes, which was the first time I had seen any footage. 
it was pretty cool. I have to say the seeds of survivor were there, but what was really fun is after the season ends, we announce the winner. It's Richard Hatch. We bring everybody back to base camp. We're just going to have, you know, a celebration. And so I walk Kelly over to that same area that we had transformed into a local bar. And I, I say, look around, does this look familiar? And that was the moment she realized, oh my God, it had been one big con. <laughs> she was at our base camp, but the lesson learned escalating rewards still holds true today. All right, I'm talking a lot, but th- I mean, I realize because I'm the only one who was there season one. Yeah. Are we good for one more story? Yeah, let's yeah. do it. Okay. The last and most important lesson learned from season one is trust the format. And here's the situation. We shot the show. We were super proud of it. We had no idea if anybody would watch. So it premieres and the ratings are good. And they're growing each week. It's picking up some steam. And if you were around then, you probably heard, you know, Survivor was on the air. It was this new show. And people were loving Rudy, the Navy SEAL. And they loved Kelly. And they loved Sue Hawk, the truck driver, and Dr. Sean. Everything was really going great. People were also hating Richard. Because Richard Hatch was the villain. He made himself the villain. He wanted to be the villain. And it was working. So we get to the finale. And as a side note about the scope of how big that finale was, 125 million people watched all or part of the finale. Wow. I mean, it's a it's still like, you know, one of the most popular shows of all time, that finale. The only problem we saw coming was we know a secret that the audience doesn't know. The villain wins. And so we were all really concerned that what was going to happen is the audience would be with us all the way to the end, and then they're going to hate the ending. And that would be the end of the show. But it wasn't the case. In fact, quite the opposite. Turns out the best thing that could have happened is that Richard won because people either love that he won or they love to hate that they won. But what it showed us, they liked the show. They liked the format. And that still guides us today. People ask all the time, do you root for certain players? I'm telling you, we don't. We just try to find interesting people, give them a fun game to play, and then trust that the format works. And so 44 seasons later, I'm still wearing the same safari shirts, still raising my hand and saying, go. We're still marooning a group of people on an island where they can't trust anyone, but they got to trust somebody. We still have tribal councils in the rain. We still say the tribe has spoken, and we're still endeavoring to make the best show we can. And I got to say, it's still as much fun today Swear this is true, Jay, as it was 23 years ago. All right, up next, your questions, and one lucky person gets to tell me why I suck. Welcome back to On Fire with Jeff Probst. Jay, what do you got for questions? If you have questions, you can send them to us via email at survivorshoutout at cbs.com. I'll read those questions. I might read them here. Here's question number one. I love when you do that little (laughs) spiel. (laughs) Question number one. For team challenges during individual immunity, how are decisions made for drawing rocks versus the schoolyard pick from Jen? That's a good question. We did used to do schoolyard picks, and they are fun and revealing because you have captains, but they take a lot of time, and our episodes are limited. So we haven't really done them. Not to say we never would. No, yeah, maybe one day. But we typically go to rocks in a bag. It's fair yet efficient. (laughs) Nice submission. Question number two. 
Do you ever hide immunity idols if no one is finding them or make it easier for someone who's on the outs from Allie? I love this question because I think a lot of people wonder about this. Specifically, do you help players mm. by putting an idol in when you think somebody needs it? We don't. We, we're very clear how many idols are going to be in the game, when they're going to go in the game. It's all about math, really. It's how many idols do you have in the game? What is their individual expiration date? To make sure that we don't ever have too many. So no, we are not helping anybody. I remember when Ben found like one after another. Ben was looking. He was getting up in the middle of the night. He was getting up early in the morning. You know, it sometimes it pays off to put a little effort in. Last question. Do castaways have prescribed times to go on interviews? Can they pretend to have an interview and go look for an idol from Ben? Well, it's a great idea, but no. Well, first of all, yeah, no the way. times are not prescribed. Mm -mm, no, it's not like, hey, at two o'clock, Carolyn, you have your interview. <laughs> no. there It's kind of an ever-flowing. It depends a little bit on what's happening on the day, but mm -hmm. interviews could happen any any time during the day. But the I think to the bigger question is, they just can't use production at all. No. And so the idea is we're not here. So in other words, you couldn't say, so weird, Britt, the producer just asked me to go on a four-hour interview, <laughs> so I'm going to be gone all day. <laughs> that doesn't happen. No. You got to figure that out on your own. All right, Brittany, your favorite part of the show where one <laughs> lucky fan gets to tell me why I suck. This is why you suck! All righty. Jeff Probst always starts each season with a big speech about how Survivor is the greatest social experiment of all time. Only problem is, it's not a social experiment. It's a TV show. Oh. <laughs> Have you been in the jungle so long that you've forgotten that? Okay, look, I love those speeches. I write them the morning of the marooning. I get up early on day one. I make some coffee. And I honestly, I just start thinking about what have we been through? You know, the all the months leading up to it, the casting that brought us this group of player, the game design, tribal, the first marooning. That's what's in my head when I say, welcome to Survivor 44. And I get that you probably think I'm too enthusiastic. And sure, you could say that Survivor's just a TV show in the same way that Quentin Tarantino is just a filmmaker. <laughs> but that's not how I see it. I actually believe Survivor can change your life, whether you're playing it or just watching it. It certainly changed mine. I'm grateful for it. And that's the same kind of energy that I'm trying to give to the players before they begin their adventure that will change their life. All right. Next week on On Fire with Jeff Probst, we go inside the art department. Did you know they're responsible for every single thing you see on the show? Everything goes through the art department. This Wednesday, new episode of Survivor, 8, 7 Central on CBS and Paramount+. Plus. And don't forget, you can actually go back and watch some of these season one moments on Paramount+. Plus. I love that they have everything there. Thanks for listening. Make sure to rate and review this podcast because it really does make a difference. And we will see you next week. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast wherever you get your podcasts.